Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Let's turn our attention now to geopolitical events. Jack Devine joins us. He is a founding partner and president of the Arkin Group, also a member of the Council of Foreign Relations, also the author of the book entitled Good Hunting, A Spy Master's Story. And he's a spy hunter. Well, I was going to let him or tell spy, us. Spy I, master, not spy I, hunter, I, spy I, master. Yes, please. Uh, Mr. Devine, thank you very much uh, for being with us. Uh, I wanted to let you describe a little bit of your 32-year career uh, for the Central Intelligence Agency. No one's ever done that. Ask me to sum up my career in a minute, but I, I will. At the top of my career, I was responsible for all the, uh, uh, what we would call spies around the world. People in the business never refer to them as spies or agents, but I was the chief spy master at the highest point. I've served in seven foreign countries. I was in, uh, in charge of the program to drive the Russians out of Afghanistan with uh, famous Congressman Charlie Wilson. On the downside, I was drawn into uh, reluctantly into the Iran-Contra affair. I was in Chile when I, Yendi was overthrown, and I was head of the counter-narcotics program with Escobar bit the dust. So I've spent a long time. I've written to it, and uh, I'm uh, passionate about uh, the intelligence business and the CIA. Uh, so you've got a strong stomach. For risk and for uh, <laughs> for potential uh, problems, I- I'm wondering what you think about uh, President-elect Trump's recent stance on the CIA and on intelligence briefings. Uh, he was quoted as saying, "You know, I'm like a smart person. I don't have to be told the same thing in the same words every single day for the next eight years." Do you think that this poses a problem? I think it's important to understand the, really the the breadth of CIA. It's not just producing analysis. It's it's collecting information around the world, and it's an instrument of the president when he wants to get things done um, below the radar. And every president has uh, used the CIA in that capacity. Uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower had 300 covert action operations to give you the sense of it. So I think... Uh, I think it's a, a terrible mistake to disdain the CIA as an institution and its people. It's very dangerous. Most most presidents uh, at least um, find a way uh, not to go head-to-head with the agency's people. We're not talking about the elites, the senior people. We're talking about people that grew up in the institution. You have to be very careful. They're very professional. They're dedicated. And disdain is about the worst thing that uh, they tolerate. And you have to watch the people don't head for the doors they do in business, the best ones. So I think uh, it's ill-timed. I understand uh, why um, uh, President-elect Trump may be dissatisfied with the intelligence he's getting. Um, there's ways to fix that, uh, make clear your, your, own, your own interest and priorities. But I think to walk away from it or to disdain it, uh, this is really uh, – extraordinary. And I think it'll turn out to be um, a huge mistake. Hopefully it'll be reset quickly. I mean, um, there are a lot of uh, professional people uh, that I'm sure will will try to make uh, some sense of this. But this was, uh, from my perspective, a, the biggest mistake on the national security arena, which doesn't bode well, I think, for the uh, the next couple of years. This needs to be straightened and quickly. 
Can you make sense or give us some sense of your thoughts having to do with Russia and cyber attacks in the U.S. election and so on? Right. I mean, I think the and first— And maybe just to add I think Vladimir the first, Putin and— right. I think the first—first uh, of all, we should say that Putin is a product of the intelligence system. You know, he was a KGB officer for over 15 years. He worked in Eastern Germany with one of the great spy masters, the East German uh, uh, Marcus Wolf. He headed up the uh, their version of the FBI. He has a mindset that understands intelligence and may understand some of the darker side because uh, the experience with Marcus Wolf is, is really pretty black. So the fact that Russians would be hacking in to our areas of policy and, uh, and of uh, foreign and domestic interest should be of no surprise. I mean, this is what not only big powers do around the world, medium and now small and even individuals do this. So the fact that hacking is not the issue, and I, I'm surprised that we spend so much time on that question. It's really whether you take that information and use it domestically. Now, that is a shocker. Uh, in the business, for all the years I was in it, there were unwritten rules. If you ask someone, they'll give you different different variations of it. It's called the Moscow Rules, in which we basically operated where we would not beat up their officers and they wouldn't beat up ours. I put it in those euphemisms. We wouldn't counterfeit money. They wouldn't count. There were, there were rules of the game. And one of the rules of the game was not to interfere in the internal politics of either country. And again, you're not going to find a treaty. No lawyers are attached to it. Um, and I think this is a violation of that. If, in fact, it turns out that the Russians not only hacked, but more importantly, used that information to try and influence, this is a change in the game. And we need to, uh, we need to um, I think, sit down privately and public with the Russians and decide whether we're going to have this new arrangement where we go after and try to influence internal affairs. Big story, huge story, seismic shift in intelligence if indeed uh, this has been done. The way that you're talking makes me think that the CIA and uh, the KGB have direct contact and discussions about the manners with which they go about their business. Is that is that really the case? I think it evolves over uh, over years. You don't sit down and, and demarcate the uh, the issues. But in my own case, I not only ran the war to drive the uh, the Russians out of Afghanistan. Years later, I was the guest of the KGB in Moscow in June of '91. The government fell in uh, August of '91. That had nothing to do with my presence there. But the point that I would make is. Of course, we have relations and deal with them. It's part of, you know, how do you uh, have a uh, a safety net so that you can pick up the phone and call each other and uh, and back off of something that may be misinterpreted. So I think that if there aren't communications today, they better uh, reset. Just real quick, are you optimistic about the year ahead? Well, you have to wait. I'm going to put out my 2017 forecast, and uh, I would say I'm bullish on 2017. All right. Jack Devine, founding partner and president of the Arkin Group, also uh, the author of Good Hunting, a spy master's story. Uh, Jack is a 32-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency. He used to be the head of all the spies.
I want to bring in Hugh Johnson, chairman and CIO of Hugh Johnson Advisors, who oversees more than a billion of dollars. Uh, I want to get your view, Hugh, on how exactly you're pricing in so many uncertainties that are supposed to come together with some clarity, perhaps next year. Uh, most people are expecting it to be bigger growth uh, expectations. Are you convinced? Are you all in on this narrative that growth will just be on gangbusters uh, run in the U.S. and that it's up from here for stocks and down from here for government bonds? Can, uh, can you, Hugh, can you just tell that, that Lisa covers the bond market very well? Yeah, she okay. does. She does. And no, I think um, gangbusters is the word. Uh, that's the strong word. And that's a little bit too strong. And when you take a look at the forecast for the economy, forecast for earnings, yeah, sure, we might get something from the Trump bump. You're right. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's uncertainty as to the magnitude. There's uncertainty as to the timing. That makes it very difficult to put together a sensible forecast for what's going to happen to stock prices. But nevertheless, we're going to get something in the order of a Trump bump. And you don't see that in a lot of forecasts. Right now, the consensus is something like 2.3% growth in the U.S. economy 2017 with a Trump bump or something, I think, is a reasonable expectation of what's going to happen next year in the form of, obviously, tax cuts and spending increases. And again, the timing's important. But what I think it's going to maybe move us up towards the, at best, 2.7, you might get as high as 29 that's going to make a difference for what earnings do in 2017. They might be a little bit higher. Then you put it all together and you say, what's the case for stocks? And the answer is, you can make the case for stocks being where they are and maybe being a little bit higher, but it's very hard to do. Valuation is really an issue, even if you include some forecast or some expectation of the Trump bump. Wait, hold on a second, Hugh. Am I hearing you correctly that you're basically bearish on stocks right now? No, that's that's not correct. Because the, what I'm saying is that it's all within the context of an ongoing bull market. If you ask yourself, is the current stock market economic interest rate cycle alive and well? The answer is yes. Uh, Trump has essentially postponed the end of it, has given a little bit new life to the economy, uh, I think that we still have a bull market. It's going to go through 2017. The case through 2018 becomes a little more difficult, but nevertheless, positive bull market environment. But within the context of that bull market environment, I'm saying we've gotten a little ahead of ourselves, I guess is the way to say it, a little bit pricey. So on a short to intermediate term basis, you've got to be really careful, uh, careful because of valuation. And you've got to be really, quite frankly, tough on prices that you pay to buy stocks. Your picking of entry points has got to be extraordinarily good uh, at this point in the cycle. We've had a big move on the upside. We're a little bit pricey. You've got to be good at picking entry points, and you have to be patient in order to be good at entry points. Hugh Johnson, S&P 500 is up nearly 11% so far during the year. Dow Jones Industrial Average up more than 14%. Tell us about financial stocks. Do you think that is an area that's going to do well in 2017? Yeah, you know, Pim, uh, when you take a look at all of this, it really looks really good. This has been one heck of a year, surprisingly good, much better than any of us, most of us anyway, had expected. So I think, you know, to, you're probably not going to get that big a year in 2017. It might be positive, but it's not going to be in the order of uh, 10 to 12 percent that we're seeing this year. 
we're not going to see anything like that. And again, I think the reason I'm saying that or concluding that is valuation. I can't put together uh, the, uh, enough earnings growth uh, in order to make the case for a real big move up in stock prices from current levels. Another way of getting at that same thing and saying it is that you've got to be a really good stock picker and you've got to pick good entry points when you pick if you pick the right stock. So be a good stock picker, be a good uh, uh, be a good sector picker. Financials are going to do well, but you and I both know they've had a big move to the upside. So you've got to be a lot more careful now than you had to be, say, around election time. You know, one thing that I'm interested in is industrials. Industrials have done really well since Trump's election. And, yeah. and um, in your notes, you said that that's one area that you're actually bullish on going forward. Uh, what's the risk, especially as trade negotiations heat up with China, uh, among other nations? What's the risk that uh, perhaps the industrial rally has gotten a little bit ahead of itself, uh, especially with companies like Caterpillar, for example, which export quite a bit of goods to China and could potentially suffer from trade, yeah. uh, a trade war there. Yeah, it's a it's a big risk. So if there's a big risk that we're not, it's very difficult to quantify that that faces us in 2017. And I might add 2018 is, is the whole risk of trade. And anytime you're talking about a large multinational company, you're really talking about trade. You ask yourself the question, well, gee, Hugh, uh, small to mid-sized stocks, stocks that are not big multinationals, have done really well uh, performance-wise since the election. Large-cap stocks have, to some extent, lagged a little bit. A lot of that is because of the concern about what the, the direction that trade's going to go. So you've really got to be careful based on a couple of things. A big move up that we've seen since the election. So we've got a couple of valuation problems, some rhetoric coming out of the Trump campaign uh, saying that, look at the costs are too high by a lot of defense companies, for example. And so that that's a little bit of a problem. That's a policy problem. And then the trade issue is, is could be a problem. The, all of this, when you're looking at financials, when you're looking at healthcare, when you're looking at technology, when you're looking at industrials, especially industrials, infrastructure play, be a little bit careful because we've had a big move on the upside. And we've got valuation problems in my mind right now. And unless we see a big outbreak in speculation, and, and that, could, that could occur, uh, in my judgment, you've got to be a little bit, if you're going to be sensible, you've got to be a little bit careful here. And again, be a good stock picker and a good entry point picker. Well, I guess if everyone could do that, everyone would have your job, Hugh. Wouldn't that be great? It'd <laughs> no, be, be great if I could do it that well. Well, I think uh, trying to match a 10-11% uh, per annum, oh. uh, a challenge for anyone. Thanks very much, uh, Hugh Johnson. He is the chairman and the chief investment officer of Hugh Johnson Advisors. They're based in Albany, New York, and he helps to manage over $1.2 billion of customer assets. lot about some big businesses that are having some direct contact with President-elect Donald Trump. But what about the smaller companies out there? To get a sense of what the landscape is for smaller businesses under a Trump presidency, I want to bring in Karen Mills, senior fellow at Harvard Business School and former small business administrator, uh, administration administrator. <laughs> Karen Mills, uh, thank you for joining us. So what is your base case outlook for small businesses under a Trump presidency? Well, 
President-elect Trump really has to step up his game on small businesses because, as you said, there have been a lot of big business personalities coming in and out of his um, realm right now. And he is appointing a lot of folks that really have the big business sensibility. So what we want to make sure is that there's somebody at the table to represent small business. And he has appointed a new SBA administrator. But the real trick is going to be to make sure that that person has a voice in all the White House economic discussions. Well, you're talking about Linda McMahon, right? And Linda McMahon, co-founder, former chief executive of the professional wrestling franchise, WWE. I, can, I mean, she doesn't seem like a lightweight uh is that <laughs> well done, Tim? Well, it took you a second, but the, but the SBA, right? I mean, it it has an office in just about like every state. I think it at least in uh, more than one. Um, do you think that Linda McMahon and her business background will be an asset to the people that depend on the SBA? Well, the good news is that the president-elect kept the SBA in the cabinet. And having a seat at the table is a really important um, role for the Small Business Administration. Every single new piece of legislation that's going to come up in this administration has an impact on small business, whether it's taxes or health care or infrastructure or anything to do with trade. Those things are really part of the lifeblood of small business. And financial reform, you have to make sure that they still have access to loans. Karen, what's the difference? I mean, this is a very basic question, but can you give us a specific example of one area where uh, a policy for small business would be different than a policy that would benefit big business? Well, it's actually true all the way across the board. So let's start with health care. In fact, there are a bunch of things in the healthcare law that small businesses want. They actually want to provide healthcare for their employees. But the problem was that they can't really even get a quote. If you have five people and somebody gets sick, that's a big risk for an insurance company. So they put new exchanges. You can actually go to a shop exchange and get a quote where your risk is pooled with everybody else's small business. So it's not five people, it's many thousands, millions of people, and that should give you a cheaper price. We don't want to throw that out in healthcare reform. In fact, that was put in by I think Olympia Snow was put in by the Republicans. So we want to make sure that somebody's got that eye on what small businesses need as things get done in this next congressional session. Right. The Olympia Snow, the Republican senator from, from the state of Maine. Uh, it's SBA uh, also a big uh, lender, right? You got the general small business loans. Uh, you've got disaster loans, the micro loan project, and you've also got real estate and equipment loans. you got a, a big... Uh, package there. Is, is that something that the administrator directly oversees, uh, or what role would they have in some kind of program that uh, oversees the loan program? The SBA has a portfolio of over $100 billion of loan guarantees. They're not loans. The banks make the loans. It's actually kind of the perfect public-private partnership. Say Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac a little bit. A little bit. And 
the guarantees are made by the SBA in a case where the bank can't quite make that loan. So this means lots of people have access to credit who wouldn't otherwise in the banking system. Well, this is absolutely critical for small businesses. And the gap in access to credit right now is in the smaller dollar loans under 100000 So when they go and look at Dodd-Frank, let's make sure to also keep the small business hat on and make sure that whatever is done benefits those who are going to make loans to the people who need something under $100,000 because that's where the credit squeeze is. Real quick, do you think that the rate hike that we're expecting tomorrow is going to have any specific effect on uh, smaller businesses? Well, it's going to be more expensive to borrow, and that's always a cost for small businesses. Um, I know they're all looking for now tax reductions coming, which might offset it. And the real important thing for small businesses is that the economy keep going. So if there's spending in infrastructure, that's good for small business and construction. But if the economy uh, doesn't do well in this next administration, the people who get hurt are the small business owners. Thank you for being with us and coming in. Karen Mills is the former administrator of the SBA, the Small Business Administration, and also a senior fellow at the Harvard Business School. Thank you very much for giving us your time. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Kim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.